And what people have got to realise is that if they're paying that kind of interest rate, they're paying off a heck of a lot more than the credit they got in the first place. It's awful. People that do that are the ones that are going to end up at retirement with hundreds of thousands of dollars these, I would say. You know, if they're making a habit of running up credit card debt or buy now, pay later debt that they're not paying off in time, they're going to end up way worse off, way worse off than other people. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. A neutral political podcast for Kiwis. Today we've one new case of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation. I'm your host, Steve O'Reilly, and aim to create non-biased discussion about issues affecting Aotearoa, New Zealand. You look at what this government is doing to business, strangling the supply of skills through immigration, fair pay agreements, extra costs, minimum wage increases, extra... Poddefend New Zealand is released monthly, and I interview people from all corners of the political spectrum. Thanks for tuning in. Kia ora and welcome to the first episode of Poddefend New Zealand for 2022. Poddefend New Zealand is a political podcast for Kiwis who are sick of media bias, and want to hear informed conversation about issues affecting Kiwis. I'm your host, Steve O'Reilly, and let guests do most of the talking while remaining as neutral as possible. Last year, highlights include speaking to Susie Wiles about COVID-19, Jared Kerr about the state of the New Zealand economy, and Simon Bridges about national identity. In the first episode of 2022, I talked to Mary Holm about managing our finances. Mary is a financial journalist, most well known for her Q&A columns in the Weekend Herald. She's also written two books for everyday Kiwis about money management. Rich Enough, a laid-back guide for every Kiwi, and A Richer You, how to make the most of your money. I speak to Mary about financial issues affecting a lot of Kiwis, how they can improve their financial literacy and be better with their money, and she'll also give you, the listener, tips you can take home to improve your own finances and make some goals for 2022. Thanks again for listening to Pod Defend New Zealand. Depending on what app you're listening on, don't forget to subscribe or follow us. So firstly, thank you, Mary, for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Steve. To start us off, what is your background and how have you become New Zealand's most trusted money expert? Um. Now that title came from the publishers, not me, but I suppose they justify it because a lot of the people doing the sort of work I'm doing are financial advisors or people who do financial seminars as a way of drumming up business for their financial services in one way or another. There's a lot of people in there who are an ulterior motive is a bit unfair, but they're trying to drum up business for themselves, whereas I'm just a journalist, you know, so I've got no reason not to say what I really think is best for people as opposed to what make listeners think, oh gosh, I can't understand that, I'll have to go and pay Mary money to learn more about it, you know. I'm not really selling anything, except of course my books, I have to be honest about that, but I've got no incentive not to make it as simple as possible. Whereas I think for a lot of other people that there are mixed motives there. And even your books, it's, um, yes, you're making money out of the books, but you're not making money out of specific financial advice. You're making money out of the fact that it's sort of well-rounded financial advice. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yes. I'm not an advisor and 
very happy to be not in this place. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into your books, which we'll get to later, what's your background that led you to becoming a trusted money expert? Yeah, I know, I've been a, a journalist my whole career and nearly all of it as a financial journalist and worked on eight different newspapers in three different countries, including the Chicago Tribune, the Australian Financial Review, and, and some little ones as well. Came back to New Zealand to be business editor of the Auckland Sun, which lasted only one year, um, and then business editor of the Auckland Star, which also didn't, you know, died a sad death a few years later. I'd got out by then, luckily. <laughs> but, so that's what I've done my whole life. I've, I've also got a an MBA in finance from the University of Chicago when I was working on the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times. I part-time did a, an MBA in finance so that I really understood what I was talking about. So while I try and keep my advice pretty simple for people, it's got a sort of thorough theoretical backing, if you will. Yeah. Just to give you a little bit of an appreciation of what this podcast is about. so. I started the podcast because I'd noticed that there were so many political commentators out there who would give short, sharp interviews with people, and then on top of that also tend to have a bias one way or the other. And so the aim of the podcast is to have a bit more of an in-depth discussion about things, but also as much as possible trying to remain neutral and not sort of swing one way or the other. In terms of like the financial side of things, I thought it would be good to talk to someone leading up to the new year because this episode will actually be released on the 1st of January 2022. But before we get into some financial advice, I just wanted to get your perspective on why so many Kiwis live paycheck to paycheck in New Zealand. Yeah, it's, it is worrying when you hear that. And, and I suspect those are the ones who don't read my columns and listen to my segments with Jesse Mulligan on RNZ. I think a lot of people think finance is just too hard, that, that they can't really cope with it all and so they don't try. You know, they just, their money comes in and they spend it and they think it's hard, confusing, boring. And it's in fact none of those really. It's, it, in particular, it's not difficult to set up your finances. One of my main messages is, look, just make a li little bit of effort to make sure you're in the right KiwiSaver fund for you, that kind of thing. And then once you've done that, you can relax and get on with other much more important things in life than your money. But it's just really good to take those first few steps to get it all set up. And, and then you won't be running up debt and worrying about whether you're going to be able to pay the power bill, etc. Yeah, one of the consistent messages that comes through about your columns is the fact that it's not difficult and that the aim isn't to spend 10 hours a week doing your finances, it's just to set you up to live the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I myself don't, people quite often assume I've read the latest financial book that's out there. And I say, no, no, I'm too busy reading novels. I mean, I do, <laughs> really, I'm not, you don't need to put that much time into financial stuff. But you do need to, to just get yourself set up. Otherwise, you, you're going to continue to do the the stuff that hasn't done very well for you often in the past. But once you've just done that one little spurt, perhaps read one or two of my books or whatever, you got yourself set up and then you really can get on with other things and take very little notice. It's actually better not to follow your KiwiSaver balance too closely, for example. 
It's one of the areas of human endeavour where doing less is better, which is pretty uncommon. It's hard to think of other areas where that's true, but too closely following your investments is actually bad. It makes people panic when the markets go down and they will come back up again, and it's better not to have even noticed that it happened, actually. Especially if you're saving for the long term, what's the point in looking at um, what it does over the last year? Yeah, absolutely. You could Looking once a year is, you know, fair enough, but looking daily or weekly or, you know, it's one reason why I'm not that keen on how a lot of the banks, if you're in their KiwiSaver scheme, when you do your online banking, often your KiwiSaver balance will come up. So people are seeing that balance every day. And when the markets go down as they did when COVID first came out in February 2020, people saw their balance going down day by day, and a lot of people panicked and moved to lower-risk KiwiSaver funds, which was a really bad move for most of them. Yeah. I actually started investing in um, Hatch, which is similar to Sharesies, about a month before the, the lockdown. And at one point, my shares had dropped 40%. You know, there's no point pulling out then. What are you going to achieve? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Good on you. Yeah, you know, Hatch is good. They're um, getting you into some good American products, which, yeah. So I've actually got one of your books behind me. Um, it's too hard to see here, and we're not um, recording this video anyway, but it's your first book, um, Rich Enough. And one of the pieces of financial advice I like really early on, going back to those people who live paycheck to paycheck, is... You know, it's all well and good thinking about KiwiSaver and investing and all these other ways you can invest your money. But I like it how right at the start you say you need to sort your debt out and give people an understanding of, you know, like credit cards and loans and stuff, how costly that is. Yes, it's awful. You know, they're often charging 20%, some of them more, the credit cards. And these days, a lot of the younger people are doing, rather than doing credit cards, they're doing buy now, pay later which is supposedly interest-free, but if you get it all behind with your payments, then income fines or charges for being late, which are the equivalent sometimes of 25%. And what people have got to realise is that if they're paying that kind of interest rate, they're paying off a heck of a lot more than the, the credit they got in the first place. It's, it's awful. People that do that are the ones that are going to end up at retirement with hundreds of thousands of dollars these, I would say, you know, if they're making a habit of running up credit card debt or buy now, pay later debt that they're not paying off in time, they're going to end up way worse off, way worse off than other people. You're talking about the likes of Afterpay, right? Yes, that's right. Given that you don't pay any interest on them, if you just put the odd item on and pay it off regularly as you're meant to, with no late payments, then it's actually all right. But, uh, I mean, one of, one of the advantages that the old-fashioned way of saving up for something before you buy it, apart from the fact that you're earning interest on the money instead of paying interest on the money, is that it gives you a bit of time to think about do you really want that particular item while you're saving for it, you know, saving for a car or a garment or whatever. And quite often, after a while, you think, oh, I'd really rather have something a bit different. So it kind of just automatically gives you a bit of thinking time there. And just to go away from the financial side, there's also the element of saving for something and earning it and then getting it, I reckon gives you far more reward than this. Um, I guess in society now, we're so used to having exactly what we want when we want it. And it's so easy to buy things right there and then, but you're probably going to get more enjoyment out of something that you actually have to save for. 
I think so, yeah. It, the trouble is it sounds so old-fashioned. Younger people listening, I fear they're going to say, oh, that's just an old lady talking about the good old days. <laughs> but I agree with you. I think there is more satisfaction in it if you save for something. When we were young, we were saving to go overseas to do the big OE, you know, and that was typically a sort of two-year savings thing. And so often when you're meeting your friends for drinks or meals or something in our early 20s, People would be saying, oh, well, let's just do fish and chips tonight because I'm saving for my OE. And then the two-year, or however long it took, came around and it was so neat to be able to take off and, and get overseas because airfares in those days were way more expensive. And, and, and some people went by ship too. That was also expensive. And, yeah, it was a huge achievement to have saved enough to go and do that. Yeah. yeah. And you say it's old-fashioned to say, you know, save for it and all that, but regardless of what generation you are, there's definitely got to be something to be said for working towards something and getting that reward as opposed to that sort of instant gratification that we've become all too used to yeah. nowadays. I understand that some people are actually almost addicted to even just pushing the buy now button on their computer. It gives some people a bit of a high even before they get the item and... I don't know how people shake that kind of addiction. I mean, there's probably quite a lot written about it. It's certainly worrying because it feels to me as though people's lives are a bit empty if the way they feel good is by buying something new. You know, that's, gosh, there's so many other things that could make you feel really good other than that, yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, not to sort of turn it into that, but I do think that we've lent our society far too much to this making and buying stuff. And that's, I guess, how the economy rolls, but it's become central to everything is buy, buy, buy. You think about, you know, Halloween, Black Friday, Christmas, Easter, and those are the ones that I can just think of off the top of my head. Yes, and there's now this ah. Singles Day one, and, and, you know, there's more and more of them coming in. And when, you know, under all the shutdowns with COVID, etc., there's now a feeling, now that we're coming out of the shutdowns, that it's almost a civic duty to go out to the shops and buy and go to the <laughs> restaurants and have meals and all of that. And Look, of course I've got sympathy for the people whose businesses have been struggling. There's no doubt about that, but it, I'm not sure that it's good for the public in general to get this message that it's a wholly good thing to go out and spend money. I really thought that with the lockdown we'd actually learn a lesson and learn to sort of take a step back and enjoy more peace and quiet and learn to appreciate things more. In the initial lockdown, I remember... We typically would go away most weekends prior to lockdown. And then those few sort of six weeks to two months that we were locked down, actually been forced to stay home and go for walks and just sort of like slow down. I actually really appreciated that. And now I make the intention not to go away every weekend and actually have some weekends to rejuvenate. And I thought surely out of this, people are going to realize that there's more to life than going to the mall. But in actual fact... <laughs> I think I saw on the news when Auckland was coming out of lockdown, there were people lining up two days to go to Kmart. Oh, yes, yes. So obviously people haven't learnt the lesson at all. No, I, don't, I agree. Although you're seeing the ones who haven't learnt the lesson, there's probably a whole lot of others who have. 
who weren't lining up to go. I mean, I call the supermarket the young supermarket because I don't think it's at all super. And um, <laughs> I don't like shopping. So I don't, you know, I think, oh, God, I've got to go and buy some new clothes and it's kind of dutifully trudge in there and, and get them as fast as possible. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Are you? Yeah. And so I, and I think in some ways telling people that's not good because it, then they say, oh, well, she's just, you know, I do like shopping, other people will say, and and why shouldn't I? The answer to that is it's fine as long as you're not spending money that you want to be still building up some money for buying a home or retiring or whatever, as long as you're thinking about where all the money's going, because a heck of a lot of money can just dribble away into a whole lot of clothes and things like that, that people seem to be reluctant to be seen twice wearing the same top or yeah, something. it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's always very clever um, marketing by the fashion companies to sort of be seen, you know, all the famous people never seen in the same dress twice. Yes. Yes, I heard about a woman, this is years ago now, who wore only one simple black dress everywhere. She must have had a couple of copies of it because to keep for the laundry, but that was her statement, you know, to just wear the only one thing everywhere. And I always thought, God, I'd quite like to have the guts to do that, to make the point that it can get awfully silly about, oh, gosh, I'm going out with so-and-so tonight, and last time I was with her... I wore that, and the time before it was that, and so I've got to find something different. You know, I mean, why? Is that what the friendship's about, you know? Yeah, and for people my age, you sort of could have three or four weddings in one summer, and if you're going to get a new suit or a new dress for every wedding, you're talking like possibly a couple of grand. It's a lot of money. To go back to your comment about people, you know, sort of buying on the credit card and stuff and putting things on afterpay, I think if you're going to go shopping because you genuinely like shopping, I think you've got to make a rule to yourself that you're only going to be using money in your debit account or, you know, you find something that you really like and you go back and you save for it and you go and buy it in a few weeks' time. But as we sort of already discussed, people just want that instant gratification. So for those people that aren't that great with their money, what would you think would be the best sort of financial advice that you could give them to better manage their money? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is to get rid of any debt you've got, other than something like a mortgage, but any other high-interest debt. It really is a killer. That, as I was saying before, people who do that are the ones who are going to retire with a lot less money. So you're heading for a not-very-nice old age if you, if you get into that sort of habit. So that would be rule number one. And, and, and then the other thing is that quite a lot of people run up credit card debt because a crisis happens. You know, the car breaks down or, or the washing machine breaks down and you can't, you've got to buy a new one because it can't be repaired these days often. And so it's really good to get rid of your long-term debt and then have a buffer, have... Some people say as much as three months' income, although I think that's a little bit unrealistic for a lot of people, but at least have, you know, a couple of thousand dollars in the bank that's reachable. It could be in one month term deposits to get you a little bit more interest on it than you might in a straight savings account, because then if you've got a credit card, you can buy the emergency item on the credit card, and by the time you have to pay the credit card debt, the one-month term deposit will have matured and you can use that money, yeah. 
I think if people wanted to seriously improve their financial literacy, they should probably do something like read your book. And I appreciate it's not a, you know, it's not a one sentence answer to improving people's financial literacy. And I sort of talked about this a little bit with Jared Kerr last or earlier this year. And well, I guess from the context of the podcast, it would be last year, but just in terms of people leaving school and having little to no financial literacy at all, like some of the stuff we learn at school is so pointless. And in my five years of high school, we had someone from one of the banks come and give a presentation in front of the whole school on budgeting. And that was the only financial advice we got for five years of high school where you know, we're learning about the history of the Russian revolution, Mm. which is so relevant to today. And yet we don't even spend a few weeks understanding the basics. Like for example, even just understanding, I think if people understand, not only do they have to pay off the credit card, but they have to pay off that interest and how much better that same money would do if it was in a savings account. If people just had a little bit of a chance to improve their financial literacy, they probably would make better decisions. Yeah, look, I'm sure that's true. Although there is a lot more going on in high schools now and some primary schools than people recognise. It's a lot of adults just kind of assume there is nothing happening, and that's not true. The Commission these days, it's called the Commission for Financial Capability, and it's also got a new Maori name that I haven't quite remembered. They are doing a lot of work in a lot of high schools. And if you go online and have a look, there is a lot happening, which is really neat. It's a growing thing. So then you've got that element for arguments like every kid leaves school and they've got a relatively decent understanding of finances and financial literacy. But then I think there's still a huge amount of that mentality of people just wanting stuff now and that instant gratification. And I guess it gets worse and worse these days where it's so easy to buy stuff online. And as you say, it's just a click of a button. And they even design the buttons and all the notifications and all that very similar to a pokey machine. Yeah, that's probably right. Yes, the the clever marketing is extraordinary. I mean, on the other hand, have you heard about this FIRE movement? The standstill? Financial independence, retire early, F-I-R-E. Oh, I have heard that, yeah. Yes. And they, um, there's quite a lot of stuff online. There are New Zealanders doing it. I think it started in North America. But there are people, they're nearly always younger people, who watch absolutely every penny they spend and save huge proportions of their income, like half their income or something like that, and then retire or plan to retire at, say, 40. And, and, and if you read about them, quite a lot of them then find at 40 they don't really want to retire, it's too boring, and go and do something else. But the, the point is not so much going mad to that extent of saving, but it'd be really good if, if it caught on for people to go along that track where they're saving 10% of their income or something like that. And, and if you read online how these people do it, it can be done. You know, they stop and think about everything they spend and do they really need that, do they really want that? They might grow their own veggies or make a point of not, of, of buying only second-hand clothes and wearing the same things over and over and all of that. And they get a kind of missionary zeal about them, I think, and that would be really neat if that kind of attitude caught on, that it was a real challenge to save as much as you could of your income and compete with your friends on those grounds rather than if you have to compete with your friends, which is sometimes I wonder what friendship's about really, but certainly when it's competing for having new clothes or a flasher car, you really do worry about what those friendships are based on, I think. 
And it won't ever be explicitly said, but it's just the subtle thing. You know, you go to a party and everyone else is wearing like, I don't know, uh, Ralph Lauren gear (laughs) and you turn up in your secondhand clothes. Yeah. Yes. Well, you could possibly, of course, turn up in your secondhand Ralph Lauren because there is that round. Yeah, true. But, um, yeah, kind of people have the spine to sort of say to themselves, this is not what life's about and this is not what my friendships are about. Is that really the basis of friendship? Competition? Yeah. But I think it starts in high school where you're so eager to get your friend's approval and then you've been doing it for 10 years and you don't almost don't even realise it. I think that that's absolutely true and teenagers are way more susceptible to wanting to belong and one of the lovely things about getting older is that you do tend to care less and less about what other people think. I'm enjoying that, that side of it. But, <laughs> uh, it does seem to be human nature, doesn't it, that, that children and teenagers want to be like everybody else. But perhaps if, they, if it's pointed out to them that, uh, certainly as they get into adulthood, that it could be quite neat to be pointing out to everybody else, hey, I'm saving 10% of my income or 20% of my income. Um, can you do that? Come on, let's see if you do that. And there's a thing in my generation we're particularly guilty of is going to the cafe a number of times a week and getting a coffee and then even maybe smashed Evo on uh, toast. Yes. Um, and while it doesn't seem like their biggest spend, it does add up. And if you're going to a cafe with your mates every weekend a couple of times and plus a few coffees in the week and you're trying to save for a house, it's that sort of thing that really does add up. Just to spin it a different direction though, when you were talking about the FIRE, so financially independent, retire early uh, types, one of the things in your columns that I really appreciate is when you get questions from people that are so focused on saving money, you'll often remind them to actually live their lives as well. I remember one story of some Australian dude who, he got to 30 and he was a millionaire and he owned four properties. In his whole 20s, he'd basically just eaten like two minute noodles and had no life. And yeah, it's all well and good. He's a millionaire in his 30s, but he's basically missed out on the best years of his life being your 20s, having fun with your mates. I think people need to remember that, yes, you need to save an aspect of your money and you're going to set yourself up for the rest of your life. But then you also got to live your life too. You don't want to get to 60 and be a multimillionaire, but having never done anything prior to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, we've got got to find a happy medium. There are people... I've noticed it seems to be particularly women, single women in particular, who can get too careful with their money. They're perhaps a bit afraid of being caught without a decent home or whatever. So they're too cautious, they're saving too much and they're being too conservative in their investments as well because they don't want to see a share market plunge even though they probably could cope just fine financially. They feel they can't cope emotionally. So, yeah, look, there certainly are people who are not living life to the full. Another time when that tends to happen is early in retirement. Quite a few people retire in their 60s and they say, oh, gosh, I might live to 95, so I've got to sort of ration my money out. And, yes, that's good, but they overdo it because they find that when they get into their 80s that they're just not going out as much, not travelling as much not spending nearly as much. And I do get letters from people saying, I wish I had spent more when I was early retirement, healthy and keen to get out there and being a bit frugal. So, you know, of course it depends on your circumstances, but people do overdo saving, you're quite right. 
So in your 20s, you know, I would actually challenge that your 20s are necessarily the best years of your life. But they're certainly amongst them. You know, I mean, each decade's got its pluses and minuses, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess it depends who you talk to. And from a guy's perspective, apparently guys are happiest in their 30s. But I do think that your 20s is the one time in your life where you tend to have the most freedom. Yes. Well, I guess different kind of freedom to someone who's retired. But, you know, like if you're retired at 60 and you're quite well off, you will have an element of freedom you wouldn't have had in your 20s. But I guess uh, your body probably can handle more as a 20 year old in terms of um, exercise and alcohol than Certainly. a 60 year old. <laughs> yeah, there's some really interesting graphs in my book, Rich Enough, that I think you said you've read. I go into the relationship between money and happiness, and there is a really interesting graph about age and happiness in there where when they're looking at adults, they report their happiness. It starts pretty high in, in your late teens and 20s. And then it goes down, and the bottom is, is around mid-40s or 50. And then it goes back up again and keeps going up, you know, right up to 80, 90. They're getting happier and happier. And in my experience of looking around, that does happen, that, that people, I think as you get older, you sort of let go of the things that worried you so much and realise you've been to get older and enjoy life, perhaps, and not worry so much about what other people think. So, yeah, look, it's all... It's all relative. But the point is that money shouldn't be... Money and happiness aren't tied that closely together. And once you've got enough money, getting more money beyond that can, in fact, lead to less happiness. And there's lots of research, and I write about that quite a lot in the book. So, yeah, we've got to get our money kind of sorted, but then get on with other things that matter more, people things. Yeah. In terms of getting your money sorted and taking some tips out of your book if there was three tips you could give to people to improve their money management and that's all you could ever give them what would they be well you won't be surprised to hear me say get rid of that high interest debt because we've talked about that quite a lot already would be number one and number two would be get a little rainy day fund going not too little because that does prevent you from falling back into debt because nearly all of us some points in our lives, if things happen that suddenly cost a lot of money, breakdowns of, of, I was going to say breakdowns of cars and things, but breakdowns of relationships too, and all of that. And then the third one would be get into KiwiSaver and into the right level of KiwiSaver for you, the right risk level for you. So do enough reading, my stuff or any, or somebody else's, but get into the right risk level for you of KiwiSaver and then stay there, stick with it. And, you know, contribute extra to it when you can. And the KiwiSaver is a terrific way for New Zealanders to forge ahead with their money. I think people get scared off the likes of the aggressive and growth funds because of their names. But if you compare it to investing in some new started company that is genuinely super risky, a lot of those investments aren't actually that risky. And I think I've seen a graph of yours and I've seen it similar elsewhere is that you tend to over time have bigger dips, but then higher good years. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think on average you're sort of expecting about a 7% return on investment per year. Yeah, that's probably, after fees and tax, it might be more like 5 or 6 in those high risk funds. But that's as much as you're going to get in anything really. 
accept, as you say, if you go into an individual company, say a new growth company, that you could get higher average returns there, but you could also get zero. You know, those sort of those sort of investments are the ones where you can lose all your money. Whereas in KiwiSaver, because every KiwiSaver fund owns a lot of different investments, it's not going to go to zero. You know, I mean, just realistically, it's not. So that spread removes the danger of things going horribly wrong or with, with Bitcoin or those cryptocurrency investments are... Bitcoin just went down just recently quite a lot. It, I mean, it it's can suddenly drop a lot. So that's for play money, I would say. If, if you want to have a dabble in that kind of thing. But I don't know that anyone much... Well, I shouldn't say anyone, but... The vast majority of people don't really fully understand what's going on with cryptocurrencies, I would say. I don't. I've read a fair bit about them, but I don't really get it. And I haven't put any money into them. Yeah, I think in one of the other pieces of advice that um, comes up in your book is about just having that diverse portfolio. And that's not just in terms of that investment fund, but you mentioned, you know, if you've got money in a house, you've got money in, a, in investments and then money somewhere else as well. Even if one of those three goes rock bottom, you've still got, you know, enough protection because you've got a diverse investment? Yes, yeah, it is good to have your money spread over quite a few different types of assets, which, you know, a lot of New Zealanders with rental property can end up with a heck of a lot of their money in their own home and rental property and not much else. It's a good idea to not be all in property. I mean, in, in recent years, that's been quite hard to argue because property's just gone up and up and up to the point where I would say there's quite a few people who don't believe house prices really can go down, but they can. I actually, my husband and I years ago lost 30% on a house in St Helias, Auckland, which is an, an upmarket suburb. So when you say you've lost 30%, people say, yeah, but you didn't buy in the right neighbourhood or the right suburb. And I go, well, what about St Helios? That was right after the share market crash of 87. And I think that a lot of people in those sort of richer Auckland suburbs had borrowed to invest in shares. And when the market crashed, they found themselves the shares were worth nothing and they still had debt. And they were forced to sell their houses. And so... We were just sort of blithely moving to the other side of Auckland and sold this house. And then we had to accept 30% less than we bought it for. And, okay, prices had dropped elsewhere in Auckland, but not by that much. You know, it was in that particular suburb that, in that area of Auckland, that they dropped a whole lot. So just by way of saying that there's no such thing as kind of a, a blue chip investment in property where you can't go wrong, because you can. We could open up a whole other can of worms with the housing side of things, but I think our reliance on investing in housing has just caused a massive problem. And I was talking with a colleague just the other day about how we're sort of noticing a bigger and bigger divide between rich and poor in New Zealand, and house prices has got to be a huge part of that. It's just unreal. Like Just to put it into perspective, my parents bought a house in Hamilton in the early 2000s for about $250,000. They've since moved on from that house, but I would say it would be at least 800, if not 900 grand. Yep. I mean, it's just ridiculous the sort of money that these houses are going for now. Yeah, it is totally ridiculous. And the people who are in the market, as you say, they're comparing them with those who aren't. I don't know how that's all going to shake down. It's not. And with parents helping their children get into houses, which is on a family level totally understandable 
and wonderful for the kids, but it, it really does exaggerate the difference because some of the other kids haven't got parents who are in that situation and so suddenly you really do have the well-off and the not. And yeah, it's a big worry. Yeah, it's not good for a sort of balanced society if um, people think that they can't, you know, that sort of idea of working hard and being able to make your way. I mean, if I left university now, I'd just be terrified. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. Especially if you didn't have family who could help you. And yeah, terrified might be a bit strong. Yeah, I mean, just to put it into perspective, we bought a house in 2017. I had a little bit of help from my parents, but it was borrowed money, so I still had to pay interest and stuff. But then my other half genuinely got help from her parents to make that happen. And back then, this is only four years ago, that was still achievable. I think now, if I left uni now and I was trying to buy a house on a you know first year out of university salary, even with the help I had available from my parents, I'm not even sure we'd be able to do it, which means for people that don't have any help from their parents, it must be near on impossible. Yeah. Of course, you don't need to expect to buy a house straight out of university, but you know. But when you're in, into your thirties and you're still struggling to get the deposit on a house together, that's not really fair. It's kind of not part of the deal. There is another point, though, and that is that people can do quite well financially never owning a house, and I, I think that that's not a bad way to look at it for people who are really struggling to get into the silly house market. If instead you save more money than your friends who own houses because they're paying down a mortgage, okay, you're paying rent, but if you can still save the kind of money that you would otherwise have been putting into a mortgage, into rates, into maintenance, into all the other things in the house, so that you get to retirement with more savings, a bigger lump sum, then you can be fine. You can pay rent until you die. You know, in a lot lot of countries in Europe, the majority of people do that. They don't ever own a house. It's not, it is a a real New Zealand thing that we feel we must own our own house. Because if a young person says, okay, okay, I'm out of the house market, I'm going to just aim to save, hit retirement with half a million or something like that, then somewhere a long way between now and then, probably house prices will get better and they will be able to get into the housing market. But, and if they don't, it's all right, because they've saved up enough money to cover rent all the way through, through their retirement. So I think you know, that's a more positive way of looking at it, saying, OK, OK, I'm out of the house market. I'm going to just get a big retirement lump sum going here. Yeah, that's actually a really good reminder for people as we get so caught up in this idea of owning a home. But if you're investing your money really well elsewhere and New Zealand house prices do start to flatten, which is what they're predicting, whether or not that actually happens, you know, you could look in um, 10 or 20 years and think, oh, actually, I was better putting my money in shares than in housing. So quite, yeah, quite fingers likely, crossed for that. Quite likely, because of the way house prices are high at the moment. Share prices are high at the moment too, of course. I mean, well, the market, how do you know if they're high? But the markets have been unusually strong all the way since the global financial crisis, 2007-8-9. Since then, apart from the sort of COVID dip last year, but we've fully recovered from that quite fast. Shares have done really well in the last 10 years too. I mean, people just don't realise that. Their KiwiSaver accounts have been growing and they haven't fully realised how good a deal that's been, I think. So given that this episode's due to be released on the 1st of January 2022 and all of us love making some financial goals for the new year, whether or not we keep them, yes, um, yes. 
What do you think are some realistic financial goals that we can set for the new year? Yeah, um, I think yeah, because you're right, it's really, perhaps not January the 1st because we're hungover, but um, a few days later you say, okay, every Monday morning I'm going to do X, you know, do a big walk or, or whatever, and, th- and they tend to fade. But one of the best ways to get ahead financially is to set up an automatic transfer from whichever account your regular income's coming into to a savings account or directly into KiwiSaver for that matter, but a transfer of money, and it might be as little as $5 a week, or start with, a, you know, for many people, they could start at $50 a week and it wouldn't, they wouldn't really notice it. Start with that amount and, and just go into the bank and set it up so that every week or every payday you have money coming out of your ordinary everyday account into a, some kind of a side account. And, you know, hopefully you can gradually increase that amount, just increase it by small amounts. You know, after six months, take it from $50 to $60 or whatever. Um, and then use that money to pay off high interest debt if, if you've got that or if you haven't setting up a rainy day fund or once you've got that done, perhaps drip feeding it into KiwiSaver or some other managed fund investment. There's a lot of these investments will accept drip feed amounts. But the point is the power of having money just accumulating little by little is incredible. It doesn't take that long for it to get to be quite an appreciable amount. And you don't have to have this sort of resolution thing going for very long. You only have to do it once. Just go into the bank as soon as the bank's open again and say, okay, 50 bucks a paycheck into this side account, please. And then just let it sit there and automatically happen. And rather than writing on a piece of paper, I intend to put $50 a week into this account, you're probably better spending your energy actually just going and doing it. And yes, you set it up once and, and, and it's done. Yeah, that's right. Because it's lethargy, you know, the power of not bothering to change something. That's why KiwiSavers worked so well, because it was set up so that people were automatically enrolled into it when they got their a new job and had to opt out, rather than saying, do you want to join? Because lots of researchers found that people say, oh yeah, oh yeah, well, I'll get round to it. Yeah, that's a good idea, and they don't get round to it. But the way the government set this one up is you're automatically in, and you've got to actually make the move to get out. And most people didn't. So they stayed in a default fund, and at least they were in KiwiSave, if not in the best fund for them, but at least in there. And coming from someone who's not particularly financially organised, I don't do a particular budget or anything like that, when we were saving for a house, one thing I found really effective was at the time I was actually getting paid monthly, and I figured out how much money typically I needed in a month, you know, for daily expenses and rent and stuff. And there was a leftover amount, and I can't remember, it might have been $500 a month for argument's sake. The moment I got paid, I put that $500 into a savings account. That's pretty um, And that way, for people that aren't big on doing budgets and spending their money perfectly, you've already effectively you know, done your saving for the month. And then if you run out of money at the end, you just don't go and um, chuck heaps on the credit card. Yeah, no, that sounds excellent. No, I, look, I don't budget either, and I don't think I ever have. You know, some people it works for, but most of us it doesn't, actually. It, it is much simpler to do what you're just saying. Yes, you've got a certain amount to cover the basics and the usual expenses. And then when there's some left over, you say, oh, I'm doing well. And when there's a shortfall, you say, I'm not doing well. And, and you know, the, 
there's nothing wrong with kind of watching how much you're spending on, you know, petrol for a while or, or whatever. But you don't have to be allocating your money to this and that and the other thing on a regular basis to do well. Not a requirement. Yeah. And, and people who aren't earning particularly good money, I think they'll sort of tell themselves that they can't save anything. I think if like 95% of people, if they're really honest with themselves and they look at what they spend over the month, you can almost guarantee that there's something in there that they really don't need. Like if we started to struggle financially, I love going to the cafe and getting a coffee occasionally and, and sometimes a little treat as well. But if I'm honest with myself, I could probably save about 30 bucks a week avoiding the cafe if we really needed to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Although coffee gets picked on a lot in, in these conversations. <laughs> and and so, for some people, it's a high point of their day to go and get that coffee. So it, does, it doesn't necessarily have to be coffee you cut out on, but it could be buying house brands in the supermarket rather than other brands that aren't necessarily any better. There's all sorts of ways that people can cut back their spending. So if, if there's something that really is your treat, I wouldn't advocate killing that one. But have a good, hard look at what you are spending. I mean, meals out and things like that. It, it's extraordinary, actually. I notice in myself that it, I don't think that much about spending 50 bucks on a dinner. But then the other day I was buying some new towels and, I, you know, some of them were $15 and some of them were 25 And I thought, oh, should I buy the $25 ones? And I thought, this is silly. Compared with what I spent two nights ago in a restaurant, you know. Yeah. So we have a, kind of different little clocks working in our heads in different situations, it seems. Yeah, and if you think about the amount of spending that you do in a given month, a given year, all those little micro spends, even at the supermarket, you're buying, you know, potentially buying 50 things, as you say, going for the home brand as opposed to the flasher brand, that cumulative actually like doing those small little decisions is probably going to save you hundreds of dollars a month. Yeah. And getting rid of that voice that says, I deserve the best. It's, I've had a few friends like that who just, they seem to always be buying the expensive stuff. And if you talk to them, they say, well, why shouldn't I? And it's kind of like, and I think people want to examine themselves on that because I would suggest that while it sounds as though it's coming from someone who's got a very strong ego, I think it could be the opposite. If you really have got a fairly healthy ego, you don't need to buy the best to tell yourself that you're actually a good person. <laughs> and even like, you know, the difference between shopping at uh, Pack and Save versus New World and the amount of money that you'll save. Just a disclaimer, I don't have any affiliations with Pack and Save, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there would be people that would only go and shop at New World because it's seen as more classy. But really, at the end of the day, you're just going and getting groceries. Yeah, well, I, I must say, as I said to you earlier, I just don't like supermarket shopping, so I'm in there and out again <laughs> as fast as possible. But it'd be good for people if they are having trouble with saving money to kind of think really hard about what messages they're telling themselves about, you know, nothing but the best for me, that, those kind of messages, which are a bit hollow, really. So uh, Mary, thanks heaps for your time. Um, one of the things that we did agree that we would do is talk about your latest book, which is A Richer You, How to Make the Most of Your Money. So can you give us a brief summary about the book? Yeah, yes, that was, that's a, the sort of follow-up to Rich Enough. I wrote several finance books quite a few years ago and then stopped and then got talked into starting again. So I've got these two newer ones, Rich Enough and then A Richer You. Rich Enough is basically eight steps to getting your finances sorted, which if you follow, then 
you can sit back and relax and concentrate on the important things. Uh, Richard Yu is based around my Weekend Herald column, which is Q&As about personal finance. And I picked out the best ones, the ones that are, some of them are funny, some of them are sad, some of them are, a lot of them have got a lot of human interest in them, which is why the column works, I think, because it's real people and they're, and they're real problems. But it's kind of a way of nosing into other people's financial worlds and learning from it. So people find it very readable because they're real stories. They're quite moving, some of them. And, and, and as I say, some of them are funny, some of them are enraging. But through reading that, you're learning. It's kind of reinforcing what's enrich enough, the basic financial messages, really. For those people listening that don't know who Mary Home is, and I, I don't think there'll be too many, uh, Mary does a column in the New Zealand Herald. Is it once a week? The Weekend Herald, yes, Saturdays, yes. Yeah, and, and just uh, talks to people, does a Q&A session, people will ask a question, and Mary, you give your financial advice, I suppose, in those situations. Yeah. And then I do the Jesse Mulligan every fortnight on his afternoon show on RNZ. Yes, when's that on? It's on on every second Thursday at about quarter past three. But they're all on my website. And they're also, they're RNZ podcasts. So you can get them. A lot of people listen to them. They sign up and regularly get it because they're not free to do it in the afternoon. Regularly get it and listen to it later on there's a lot of feedback on that apparently it's one of rnz's most popular podcasts so it's doing quite well there a lot of younger people it seems it's surprising and i keep people recognizing my voice you know i was in a trapping hut a while back and just talking to my friends who were just cooking dinner down at rakiura down stewart island and somebody came over to me and said you mary holmett does that thing with jesse mulligan they recognize my voice which was quite funny so that's quite an easy way for people to pick up stuff too. Because the Herald column is behind a paywall, and if you don't want to pay for that, you can though, read it on my website. It's on there every week as well. It's just called maryholm.com. M-A-R-Y-H-O-L-M.com. Mary Holm, one word, yeah. Well, thanks heaps for your time, Mary. Thanks for coming on Pod Defend New Zealand. No, thank you for having me, Steve. You, you do a brilliant job at this. That was Mary Holm. I hope this provided you with some inspiration for your own financial goals and New Year's resolutions for 2022. I don't have too much to add here, other than to say it is a step in the right direction if kids are being taught financial literacy at schools. People from poor backgrounds often make their situations worse with bad choices with money. Education is not going to fix the issue, but it is a great starting point. That's all from me this month. As always, I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy, and thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter, at NZ underscore pod, or Instagram, at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.